Amen. All right. You should have an outline there somewhere. And uh, tonight we'll be looking at uh, verses 1 through 8, 1 through 8 of Judges 15. So you can turn your Bibles. Beginning in verse 1, it says, After some days at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is, is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Verse 4, So Samson went and caught 300 foxes, and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked uh, grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. And the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law, of the Timnite, because he has uh, taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and they burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etim. Last time we saw Samson last week, he was headed back to mommy's house, going home to daddy. (laughs) Uh, Remember what happened at his wedding feast? Supposed to be a wonderful day. Uh, He was was, uh, betrayed by his bride. And he was outwitted by 30 Philistines came up with this riddle, gambled kind of deal. Uh, and in anger, because he lost the bet, because they cheated, uh, Samson killed 30 Philistines, and he took their garments to settle a gambling debt. And they were supposed to uh, swap certain garments as, as a result of this bet they made. He came up with a little riddle about the honey and the lion carcass. And as far as we see so far, Samson is anything but... Uh, an example of godliness. He's taking out his own revenge. Uh, He was born to be a judge in Israel. He was supposed to be taking this Nazaritic vow. He was sent by God to uh, be a deliverer to his people, of his people. And all we have seen thus far of this man is that he cannot control his emotions or passions at all. And uh, in this passage, we're going to we're going to look at, we see his selfishness come back out once again, just very clearly. And uh, we'll watch, and we, we heard how Samson takes uh, revenge on his enemies. And uh, we'll see the outcome of the anger uh, that is allowed to burn out of control. And that's what happens when anger gets out of control. And we'll see that this revenge that he has in his heart, um, it appears attractive and i think we've all had that kind of experience with revenge 
someone does this wrong, we're going we're gonna to get them, you know. But in the end, it becomes a very, very bitter, bitter thing. And so tonight we're going to look at the bitter taste of sweet revenge. And we're going to look at a couple of the lessons that we see. But if you look at verses 1 and 2, he has a plan here, Samson's return. Remember, he ran away from his own, his own wedding day. Ladies here tonight, you wouldn't think too highly of your, <laughs> your fiancé if you were literally left at the altar because your husband-to-be couldn't control his anger and stomped off and uh, thought he had to take care of things that were more important than you. So he never consummated this, this wedding. He, he never consummated his marriage. And so after a time, I think reality sets in, his anger cools off, and Samson decides to try to make amends with his bride. So he says, well, okay, we're going to get married, so I'll go back. And he brings her a present that every, I'm sure every woman desires to have. He, he brings her a goat. <laughs> okay. Now, in our culture, we look at that and go, wow, that'd be an insult, you know. But back then, it was kind of a gift. And uh, he goes down with the idea, hey, everything's going to be fine. This is fine. I'll bring her this goat, and, you know, we'll consummate our marriage and uh, settle in and live with her as husband and wife. It's all going to be good. But we have a problem. And we see the problem that comes up here at the end of verse 1. Samson's father in law. Uh, says, hey, hold on there, chap. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you already left my, my daughter at the altar once. This isn't going to happen. So I thought you didn't care for her. I thought as, as far as you're concerned, you know, you didn't, you didn't want to consummate your marriage, so I, I gave her to your best man. Basically what happened. Gave her to your buddy. Um, and that's kind of a odd thing too. But you know what? It's, it's better to at least for her to have a husband than to be <clears throat> totally single at that point. At least it probably spared her some of the embarrassment. And maybe he was a good-looking guy. I don't know. But for whatever reason, that's what the father did. And I think he was trying to regain some of the shame for his daughter and uh, correct this thing. And the father just assumed that, hey, you treat my daughter that way. I just assumed that you hated her. And uh, the marriage now is, is basically in effect, annulled. Uh, It's no longer going on. And so in verse 2, the dad, probably thinking, okay, this is a strong guy. I don't want to get him too mad. He's already upset at me. Why don't you take her sister? All right, just take her sister. So he encourages Samson, as you see there in verse 2. Hey, I thought you were utterly, that you utterly hated my uh, other daughter, so I gave her to your companion. Is is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? So she, what's he doing? He's appealing. He can see right through Samson. He sees what motivates this guy. And it's, it's greed and it's passion. And so he says, well, she's better looking, you know, take her. And uh, he's trying to appeal to his, his fleshly desires, which really didn't have any problem doing. Um, but, you know, at the same time, um, remember, this is a guy who really wanted something. He wanted that, that woman to be his bride. His parents tried to talk him out of it. I'm sure other people in Israel probably said, hey, this isn't a good idea. And oh, This is the one I want, and I want her and nobody else. And so the father offers, her, uh, offers him this trade in verse 2, and he encourages Samson to take the prettier, younger sister instead of the girl that Samson was set to marry in the beginning. 
So it's kind of an interesting tale that, that goes on here. And um, I think that, you know, the dad must have thought that Samson didn't really care for the daughter, the other daughter that he left. Um, but maybe it was just purely, purely physical in nature. And I say that because he appeals to him on the basis of the other girl's looks. And he was probably right. If you go back to chapter 14 and you look at verses 1 and 3, the way he talks about this one, you know, boy, I saw her and, uh, you know, I want her and get her for me and, and all that. So he was totally caught up with this, this, this man's daughter. And um, it's, he assumes that Samson will be just as satisfied with the younger sister. And, and, and what Samson is doing here, unfortunately, is he's, he's not really learning the lesson, but God is trying to teach him a lesson that um, you can't trust these people. You can't trust the Philistines. His parents tried to tell him that. Uh, I'm sure he's had other dealings with them. He knows that. But you know what? When there's passion and love and all the stuff involved, it's like, you know, logic is checked, at the, checked out. You know, it's just it makes no sense what he's doing at this point. But Samson has been cheated by these people in three ways. Three ways. And he's still, you know, he, he's ticked off that they took advantage of him in this way. First of all, he lost his bet. Remember, we talked about this last week with the Philistines because they cheated by, by going to this woman and saying, hey, if you don't tell, her, tell us what this riddle is, what the answer to this riddle is that I came up with in, in verse uh, chapter 14, then uh, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? Um, you know, that's the answer to the riddle. And so, you know, the riddle was what? Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And he was talking about the honey that he ate out of a dead carcass. And so uh, these enemies, the Philistines, went to the lady that was part of their tribe and said, hey, you know, you're one of us. If you don't give us this information, get this information from him and give it to us, then, uh, you know, we're going to burn your house. We're going to burn your father and you're just going to torture your whole family, basically. So obviously she felt threatened, and so she weasels her way in there, and uh, he, he tells her. And she goes back and um, tells them, and, and they come, and they, they share with Samson the answer, and they made a bet about this. And part of, the, part of the, the deal with the bet was, you know, Samson didn't need this stuff. They probably did, but, he, you know, he didn't need this stuff, the 30 cloaks and all that. You know, he's doing pretty well for himself. And so it's just greed set in. And so he lost this bet because they cheated by threatening his wife. Um, and they, she helped them get the riddle, the answer to the riddle. That's the first way that, that they took advantage of him. Secondly, his wife, think about it, his wife-to-be had been taken away and given to another man. You know, and, and, and back then, I mean, you know, your, your word kind of meant something. So, I mean, if you say, yeah, you're going to marry my daughter and the arrangement's made and it's on the wedding day, even though he left, okay, which was wrong, and left her standing there, and the father says, ah, you know, here, we'll hook you up with this guy. You know, this best man looks pretty good. He'll take care of you. Uh, forget about Samson. And obviously she didn't love him because, you know, she's like, sure. You know, I just want this shame to go away. Um, and so... In verse 20 of, of, of chapter 14, it says, hey, you know, he, he, he kind of, she's been given to this other man. And, uh, 
he lost the bet. He lost his wife, basically. And then thirdly, it doesn't mention this here, but, you know, the culture was one of when you would um, give away a daughter, there was usually some form of dowry that was paid, okay? Um, because, you know, you're losing a working member of your household. So to replace that, it's going to cost some money, whatever. So, you know, th- there's a dowry that probably he forfeited as well. And so that was taken from him. And so, you know, you can, you can imagine somebody who is such, so egotistical as Samson, he is just really, really ticked off at this point. He's upset. And, um, you know, God warns his people. He's warned them over and over and over again. Israel, he warns us in the New Testament. Um, look, you know, be careful when you establish relationships or form relationships with people who are not saved, who are, in this case, people who are not of our tribe of Israel. You know, that was a forbidden thing. They shouldn't have done this. He, he, he shouldn't have done this. His parents tried to talk him out of it, but he wouldn't listen. Um, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you turn over there, you can see it. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. And this is not, you know, rocket science. I mean, Paul spells it out for us uh, very clearly. Uh, he says in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked. You know what a yoke is? It's a piece of wood that goes over two um, cows or whatever that are plowing and so they can be locked together and double the strength of the of the the team it says don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers this is this is the apostle paul he says for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness and these are rhetorical questions the answer is none okay he's not asking a question because he doesn't know he he's stating the obvious or what fellowship has light with darkness what accord has christ with belial so he's saying look you know, there, there's pagan people here. They serve a different God. You, you don't have any business as a Christian um, connecting with these people in a relationship way. Uh, he says, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? The answer is none. Well, what if I, what if I can win them to Christ? Well, that's great. But until you do, you're unequally yoked, according to the Bible. You're doing something against God's word. Verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now this is specifically talking about Israel, obviously, but it relates to us as believers because we are his people. He purchased us with Christ's blood. And so verse 17 says, therefore go from go out from their midst and be separate from them. All right? Be holy, be separate, um, says the Lord, and do not touch, un, uh, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, you would have to be a complete idiot not to understand what Paul is saying here. Um, and yet, Christians all the time they start a relationship with someone who's not a believer, and then, you know, in five years, they're scratching their head, and they're going, gee, we don't know what happened. And their life is miserable. And, and they broke this. They, they, they violated this very, very basic principle. That doesn't mean you can't have, 
non-Christian friends. We should have non-Christian friends. I mean, how are we going to evangelize people if we're not around them? But you have to be very, very careful. We're going to talk about this a little bit in the coming weeks on, on Sunday in Corinthians because it talks about um, bad company corrupting what? Good morals. Okay? And, it, and it's so important that we get this in our head. And the moment we th- begin to think and we believe, oh, no, 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 that's, that's other people. I would never go down that road. I would never go down that path. You're falling right into the enemy's trap. And you see it over and over and over again. And so the prohibition here extends beyond, really, marriage even. You know, this would extend to, um, I, I believe, business relationships, social relationships, everything. You know, if you're spending a predominant amount of your time with those who are outside of Christ, it's going to affect you. You'd have to be dead for it not to. So you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, okay, what am I risking here? Is it worth the risk? Um, and, I, and I do believe it, it extends even to things like business, business partnerships or things like that. Because you know what? If you don't have the same basic biblical principles you're operating on, you know, and you're married to somebody who, you know, has no clue of morality or no clear, clue of biblical principles, and they have an advantage, they have the opportunity to take advantage of somebody, cheat someone out of some money, and then well, you're the Christian in that relationship, and you're going to say, well, wait a minute, no, 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 I, we can't do that. Well, why not? Right? What's going to happen? It's going to be con- conflict right away. And, and you know, uh, and I think it's very wise. You know, a lot of the, the big high company, uh, high tech companies now, someone told me this a couple years ago, it's kind of odd the way some of them are doing their interview process. You know, usually you would fill out your resume, right? Say all the experience you have, you take it to HR, whoever's hiring, and they would look at it and they'd say, oh, okay, yeah, we can use you. We're looking for this, we're looking for that. They don't, they don't seem to do that anymore. This is like pre-COVID. What they would do is they would have you submit not even a resume, but basically they would interview you if you wanted to work at their company. And they would spend a couple interviews with you to see if your personality would work in their company. They didn't even care what you did at that point. But you know what? If you, if you went through the interviews and they thought, wow, this guy, yeah, this would be a great part of our team. What's your resume like? Then you give them the resume. Oh, okay, you're, a, you're an engineer. You're this or that. Okay, yeah, we can definitely find you a place. We want you on our team now. Why? Because they know you'll work there. Okay, the, the personalities and the, the giftedness and everything is, is right what they want. And, and for years, they've done it the other way around. And a lot of times and many of you know this, you can look at somebody's resume and think, wow, this is incredible. And you hire them, and you realize, well, what was that, a pack of lies? Because this guy can't do anything. Okay, right. And so, you know, just because it's on paper doesn't make it true. And, and that's where you have to be willing, I believe, to, to, to take friendships and relationships, and whether it's even leading up to marriage or business, whatever, test the waters first. Test the waters first. And, and I always say this even applies when someone says they are a Christian. Because I've, you know, run into a lot of people. You know, I remember as a youth pastor, I was at a, at a college retreat, and uh, there were some guys at this retreat at Hume Lake. And I heard them over listening to their conversation. And... Uh, they were talking to each other and they were saying, hey, you know what? Best place to pick up chicks is at church. They weren't Christians. 
They were going to their church just for, just, just for that purpose. And you, know, you would be naive to think that there's not people like that. And so just because somebody says, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, you better, you better stop and you better say, okay, I'm going to test this. I'm going to give this time. Let it develop. And see what kind of Christian they are. Because even if they're a Christian, in all honesty, what if they're a faithful follower of Benny Hinn? Or, or one of those crazy people? Okay, what, I mean, yeah, they're a Christian, but I mean, theologically, you're not even on the same plane. And then you get married, and it's like, well, where, what church are we going to go? Well, we're not going to, I'm not going to that church. Well, I'm not coming to your church. Fine, we'll just go to our own churches. <laughs> what kind of marriage is that? And there's couples that actually do this. And then they fight over where the kids are going to go. Um, and it's, it's sad. And so you have to be aware that this is a very real situation that goes on in the church and in people's lives. And it went on in Samson's life. And he didn't listen. He didn't listen to the honest reason. He didn't listen to people that loved him, that cared for him, his own parents. He just shoved it all aside and said, no, I, I'm going to do this. And so we have to be very careful who we form close associations with. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.33, we'll see this in a couple uh, weeks. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins, devastates good morals. All right? It can be devastating to your spiritual growth. It can be devastating to your personal testimony. It can be devastating to your spiritual condition. Just hang around with the wrong people, and you'll see what happens. Proverbs 13.20 says this, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So we have to be careful. The kind of people that we want around us are the type of people that will help us grow stronger in our relationship with the Lord. And what I see a lot of times, even among men in the church especially, is their friendships with other men consist of men who are spiritually inferior to them. And the reason is so they can look like the spiritual giant. <laughs> when really they're not. You know, I'm not as bad as Harry. I mean, he, he only comes to church once a, once a month. So I, I want to meet with Harry. Why? Because he makes me look good. And it, it feeds our flesh. You know, rather than meet with someone who can take you to some new heights because that might stretch your faith a little bit. We want to grow in our relationship with the Lord. Uh, Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. You know, we're not here just to play games and pat each other on the back. We're here to stir up each other. You know, picture yourself in a, in a saucepan being stirred with a wooden spoon. Do you think that feels good? Sometimes it doesn't. Um, sometimes it 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 hurts. Or Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. And ladies, I would say this applies to ladies as well. Okay. Um, Proverbs 27, 9 says, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Hopefully you want a friend that's not just going to laugh when you laugh and pat you on the back and pretend everything's good when it's not. Hopefully you want a friend that's going to be honest with you that's going to be willing to say those hard things at times. See, Samson would have none of that in his life, not even from his own parents. And so the principle taught here is not that we should totally 
isolate ourselves and become monks and live on top of a, of a mountain in an ivory tower and, and not have anything to do with that lost and dying world down there. No, because Jesus said what? We're, we're to go, we're to be the, the salt and the light. We're to go out and to, to mingle with people who are lost so that we can share the gospel with them. But you don't want to linger there too long. You know, you don't want to linger there too long. You want to make sure that you're getting energized by your fellowshipping with the church, whether it's a Wednesday night Bible study, Sunday service, whatever, a meeting on your own with other members of the church, whatever it might be, but you need that. Don't think that you're strong enough just to go out there and spend seven days a week, eight hours a day in the world and think that somehow coming here for an hour and a half or, or two hours on a Sunday is going to build you up spiritually for the rest of the week. If that's your idea of spiritual growth, you're sadly mistaken. He, we, we see here his, his return, and we see the, 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 the plan, the problem, the proposal. But look at his revenge here in verse 3. Okay, verse 3. Instead of taking his defeat like a man, I mean, rather than just, you know, be, being willing to say, okay, yeah, you, you tricked me, you beat me, whatever, uh, and going home to regroup and maybe seek God's counsel in all this and God's will for his life, what does he do? He plans to get even in verses 3 to 6. The problem, I think, with getting even is that it's impossible to set things right. Okay, It's totally impossible. Samson is about to find out that revenge always escalates out of control. It always escalates out of control. He's about to learn the truth that, that violence... When you, when you relinquish and you end up being violent with somebody, what, what does that usually do? It usually begets violence. It usually begets violence. And so in verse 3, he talks about this. And it says, And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. He was already in his heart ready to take these guys out. He, he, didn't, he didn't care about them. Um, these were his relatives and stuff of his bride-to-be. But he was so ticked off, all he was seeing was red. All he was concerned about was himself. That was it. That was his motivation, basically. He was concerned about what they had done to him. He was concerned, he was motivated in his revenge by what? By vanity. He even tries to justify his actions by claiming that they had done worse to him. I mean, his motivation here for attacking the Philistines is completely wrong. But... Within the sovereignty of God's will, God has a purpose and a plan here, and it will be carried out. He should have been attacking them because they were oppressing who? They were oppressing Israel. I mean, he was supposed to be a representative of his own people. And he's more concerned about being, you know, stomping off from the altar and then losing his wife and taking out revenge because they figured out how to trick him when he was trying to trick them. He should have been attacking the Philistines because it was what God had raised him up to do. He should have been attacking them because he was to help them deliver his people from the bondage of the Philistines. That's why he should have been attacking them. But instead, what does he do? Samson attacks the Philistine because he's mad. He's mad about how he's been treated. It's so ridiculous. It's so childish. But that's exactly what he's doing. He's doing what God called him to do, but he's doing it for all the wrong reasons. And that's a big a big difference. And he's doing it out of the wrong motivation. You know, this is a good place to stop. And you know, if you're involved in ministry of any kind, whether it's just 
having a Bible study, whatever, any kind. Stop and ask yourself, why am I doing this? What's my motivation in this? Because you can be doing what God calls you to do for all the wrong reasons. Our motives for serving the Lord will determine really our, our faithfulness to him and to his biblical principles, to his word. And it will re- kind of regulate our service uh, for him and to him. When we serve God because we receive, and the only reason we serve him is because we receive some benefit in return, we're going to be very, very shallow, like an eighth of an inch deep in our faithfulness and in our service. And you, you can see this coming a mile along. You know, if you've been around people in ministry and things like that, when, when people, the only thing they're interested in is what's in it for them. Usually their ministry in one place doesn't last very long. And, and what happens? You know, they take the ball and go home. So, you know, the way we serve the Lord, our motivation, all that stuff, if it comes out of a sense of, of pure obligation, okay, then you've got a problem. Or if it becomes, comes out of a, of a desire to be some kind of a social outlet for people, okay, that's wrong. All right, then you're going to look at the church as a lodge or, or a club or whatever. That's, that's what they're doing now. We should serve the Lord because he's called us to serve him. He desires us, he commands us to serve him in every way. Um, and, and we need to do it for the right reasons. And uh, we just need to make sure that we check ourselves on that because it's easy to go down that road. I mean, it's very easy. If, if, you're, if you're in ministry for any time, you realize it's not a cakewalk. I mean, you have things that pop up all the time. At the same time, there's so many blessings when you're serving the Lord and you know that you're doing what God has called you to do. It, it's a wonderful thing. But when someone serves the, the, the church because they, the only reason they're doing it is to get a pat on the back, hey, good job. Boy, we'd be lost without you here or whatever. If that's the only reason they're doing it, the gratitude of the congregation, whatever it might be, that's wrong. Um, because that's, that's not going to last forever. And so, you know, it's the same thing when, when people are doing it purely for, you know, the attendance or the money or whatever. And when those things are off a little bit, then, oh, well, okay, I'm going to look for some, some, somewhere else to serve. That's wrong. And so that's where you go down the road of having gimmicks to kind of create this false sense of of success in ministry so you buy people the hot dog or the hamburger and well next week well they're tired of the hot dog now you buy got to get them a chicken sandwich well they're tired of the chicken sandwich now you gotta you end up buying them a steak and you know you can only go down that play that game for so long you know entertaining them that kind of a thing and so you don't need to use methods and gimmicks or whatever you just have to serve out of sincerity from a true 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 desire to be pleasing to the lord and so we have to examine why we do what we do. We have to examine our motives. Why do we serve the Lord? Why do we come to church? Why do we do the things that we do in life? Um, If we're motivated by love for the Savior, if we're stirred by the thoughts of all that He did for us and, and Him dying for us and saving us and keeping us and blessing us, and if we realize that that everything we have is is the product of His grace in our life and His mercy to us, then we have the proper motivation right? To serve him. We don't do it because we have to. And that, that kind of motivation can really sustain you in ministry. First Corinthians chapter 15, again, verse 58, it says this, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. He's talking to his, his fellow Christians, Paul is here. He says, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. I can't tell you the amount of times I've come to church and that verse has been ringing in my head. (laughs) Because frankly, sometimes you feel like it is in vain. (laughs) You know, you really do. But you have to ask yourself, what's motivating you? What's motivating you? And then his methods here in verses 4 and 5. Because Samson determined to exact his revenge, right, against the Philistines. And so what does he do? It's kind of ingenious, really. I mean, I read this, and I'm like, well, that's pretty cool. I mean, unless you're a PETA fan or something, you're probably, oh, poor little foxes. But, you know, um, and they weren't foxes. They were probably jackals, because that's what they have over there. But um, some kind of animal. He catches 300 foxes. He catches 300 foxes. And commentators say they're probably the kind of jackal that used to roam the hills up in Israel, large packs. He ties them tail to tail. And then he has, so he has 150 pairs of these, these animals. And he takes a, a torch and he ties it to the, the tails in the center there. And then he obviously scoots them free. And they're running because they're on fire, basically. And where do they run? They run into the bushes. They run into the wheat harvest. Remember, the very first verse, what did it say? After some days, at the time of the wheat harvest. You think, why does God put that in there? This is why. Okay, he wants you to know. This is a very serious time. Back then, when you lived in an agrarian society and everything, and it was time for the harvest, I mean, it was make it or break it. You know, if something happened to your harvest, boy, it was all over. You know, it's not like you can just go out and plant another uh, uh, a field of, of wheat and, and wait for a week and it comes up and you know oh, you can do that no you, you, you gotta there's a lot invested i mean my brother was a farmer and i was always just amazed at the patience they have for stuff i grew up in pennsylvania and it was always you know we had a lot of sweet corn and stuff like that and it was always knee high by the fourth of july but i mean it took forever for that corn sometimes to get knee high you know and you thought is it even going to make it all right but um, that was kind of what happens. And, and so here he, he, he does this, and these animals, terrified, on fire, run through the wheat fields, the olive groves, and the vineyards. And what happens? He, they burn them all to the ground. And it would have been a devastating blow to the economy. And so the fire of revenge really is what burned here in Samson's heart. And, and sometimes, as Christians, you know, we're offended or someone does something wrong to us, and rather than do what God tells us to do and forgive and move on, this revenge kind of takes root in our heart. And we may not carry something like this out, hopefully, but you know what? If, if it's still residing in our heart and there's still a bitterness there and a hatred there for someone who's done something to you, you really need to repent of that. You need to go to the Lord and confess it and say, God, you need to heal my heart. Here he's upset about losing his wife. He's ticked off that they tricked him. He's ticked off that he had to pay him the the 30 30 pieces of clothing. He can't let it go. His pride would not let him. And he wanted a pound of flesh. And boy, he got it. But look at what happens. Verse 6. He has a miscalculation here. Because he carries out his his revenge. He does. Um, And he probably thinks, you know what? This is all going to be over. This is the end of the matter. And you know what? If you ever think that when you're carrying out revenge, it's a terrible mistake. It's a terrible miscalculation. Because you know what? The Philistines now are really, really ticked off. All right? They're upset because they lost their livelihood. They lost all their crops. They lost not just the wheat. They lost the olive garden. They lost the vineyards. And they ask around to see who who did this. And 
someone finally says, well, that Samson character, he did it. And you know what? These are people that his parents tried to tell him, you, you don't want to have dealings with these kind of people. They're wicked people. They're selfish men themselves. Um, okay, they have a great-looking daughter. Don't hook up with these people. You're not, it's not going to pay off in the long run. He wouldn't listen. And these people are instantly filled with thoughts of vengeance. But you know what? They know they can't take on Samson <laughs> to his face. And so what do they do? They cheat. They go after, what, something that, that Samson liked and the cowards that they are. They attack Samson through others. They attack the, the woman that he married or tried to marry and her father, and they, they burn them alive. They shut them up inside the, the family home, and it says that they, they burned them to death probably. I mean, what a horrible scene. It's just horrible. And it says here, I mean, when you read that, it's, I mean, you, you, you envision that happening. It's just a horrible scene, but it really showcases the truth the basic truth that, you know, revenge always has a tendency to escalate. You know, have you ever seen the videos with road rage, right? I mean, somebody just cuts somebody off, and why well, they do something, and, and, and pretty soon people are, what, shooting at each other, right? Or they're putting baseball bats through people's windshields. It's crazy, but that's what happens. Someone does something, someone says something about us, what do we do? We respond back in either actions or words that are really unbecoming of the Lord. And what do they do? Then they respond back. And, you know, these have, it has different levels. I'm not saying you're going to be out there putting a baseball bat through somebody's windshield. It could be very naive. It could be very, very simple with someone. But you know what? It always escalates. And what happens? It goes on until lives are affected negatively or they're ruined or reputations are stained and relationships are shattered. Okay? And it just gets out of hand. It happens like that. And so it's never, ever, ever God's will for us, and this is something we need to hear over and over again, to seek revenge against those who hurt us or offend us. That's not what we're called to do. I mean, a lot of us are taught that we have to defend our honor. Boy, if somebody says something negative about me, I've got to get out there and fight for myself because nobody else is going to fight for me. No, no. If people are attacked, they usually think that somehow it, it shows weakness to just take it and let it go. Samson thought this way. That if I, if I, if I just give any speech, it, it's, if I let this go, man, it's going to show weakness. Most people are quick to rise up against those who attack them. And what do they do? They attack back with an extra men, measure of violence and an extra measure of vengeance. That's not God's plan for his children. That's not what God calls us to do. When we are attacked, pray that we never attack back. I don't say you don't correct the record. But you have to do it in a gracious, godly way. Because when you attack back, you're, you're basically putting yourself on the same level as those who have attacked you wrongly. And you end up caught up in all kinds of things. Rumors and gossip and ruining reputations. And it tarnishes our testimonies in Christ. And you know what it reveals to people? Wow, if you can have a grudge against your own family or your own kids or your own relatives or your own neighbors or whatever... Um, don't come telling me about the love of Jesus that you, know, that you claim to have in your heart. Because it's, it must not be as, as powerful of a force as you make it out to be if you're having these petty things going on. It gives us a bad rap as far as the Lord is concerned. Uh, those who attack others do not love them. 
but are walking in hatred. And it reveals the pride in our own hearts when we do such things. And people that do this on a regular basis are just basically people who are so egotistical they think that they're the only ones that are right and everyone else is wrong, period. They're walking vessels of pride. So we have to be careful of that. Because when you, when you do that, when you're, you're walking in pride, you're, what are you saying? You're, you're saying that this life is about me. This life is about me and me alone. It's not about the will of God for our lives. It's not about others. It's not about reaching out and loving other people. No, it's about me. And you know what? If you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. I think I'll be able to show that God has a better way of responding <laughs> to our attackers than just attacking them. So we've seen his return, his revenge, and look at his rampage here in verses 7 and 8. And Samson hears about the death of woman and her family. He takes things to the next level. He gets ticked off. You say, well, isn't that right? I mean, look at what happened. But violence begets violence. And it just continues to escalate. The verse says that he smote them with hip and thigh with a great slaughter. What that, what's that talking about? It it's basically means a total and absolute slaughter. I mean, he went nuts. He totally lost it. Basically, he killed all of them who were responsible for this. He didn't stop until they were all dead. Yeah, he got the ultimate revenge against his enemies. He took their lives. And often, a lot of times in our world, people seek retaliation in the same way. Someone attacks a family, they are in turn what? They're, they're murdered because of what they've done. You see this playing out in the streets of Chicago and Oakland and other places. You know, yeah, you're going to hurt one of us, we're going to hurt one of you two times. And it just escalates. It never works. We may look at this in our logic and say, well, I don't blame them. You know, what would I do if someone came and, and tried to harm my wife or whatever? Well, yeah, I would protect her. I'd do the best I can. But you know what? I, I've seen so many court cases where you know what, someone has had someone murdered in their family. I'm thinking, well, I don't know if I could wrap my mind around that. Someone hurt my grandkids or my wife or my daughter or my son-in-law. Man, you know, I, I don't know what i do, all right? But then I stop myself and I go, well, I, I would pray that the Holy Spirit would control me in that instance because I've seen that happen where someone has murdered a daughter or a son and at the hearing, yeah, the person gets the the justice, whatever it is, life sentence or whatever. But you know what? That family reaches out to that individual. Says, you know what? You've taken, you've taken someone from us that we loved and, and we're glad that you're put away for the rest of your life. But we want you to know we forgive you. I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could do that. But that's what we're called to do. See, when we, when we think in revengeful ways, we, we're really showing that revenge is part of our makeup. And we reveal the truth that we're, we're not above getting a little revenge even for ourselves. You know, we, we just want to ask the Lord to, to help us not have that attitude. I want my pound of flesh too. You took something from me while well, I'm coming after you. That, it's the grace of God alone that, that keeps us from going down that path, to be honest. Scientists tell us, by the way, and they've determined that there's a part of the brain that produces feelings of, of pleasure and satisfaction that is stimulated when we act in revenge. It actually feels good to hurt someone who's hurt you. There was a lady who was sick. She didn't know what was wrong with her, and she was getting sicker and sicker, and so she went to the doctor. 
and he examined her. And he said, you know, I gave her a bunch of tests and everything. And he goes, I, I'm sorry, I have some bad news. This is horrific news for you. And she goes, well, what is it? And he goes, I, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but you've contracted a very serious case of rabies. And I don't know how this is going to work out for you. And the doctor left the room for a minute and to get another chart or something. And when he returned, the woman was sitting there at his desk writing. And he asked her, what are you, what are you writing? Are you, are you writing your will? <laughs> what are you writing? And she said, no, 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 no. I, I'm making a list of all the people I'm going to bite. <laughs> See, I mean, that's the way most people think about revenge. You know what? It, it was not fair it happened to me. Well, I'm going to pass this thing on. Okay, I'm going to endanger other people's lives. And when you, when you have that kind of attitude, it doesn't end well. It usually doesn't. When you look at the reasons here, his retaliation and his reasons, verse 7, he, he, his, his reasons for seeking revenge are purely selfish. Just look at verse 7. I mean, Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will avenge on you, and after that I will quit. He doesn't mention the Lord. He doesn't mention the people of Israel. He doesn't mention the injustices of all the, the Philistines toward the people of God or toward God himself. There's no mention of the Lord's will. There's no mention of God's glory or the Lord's glory. There's no mention of the Lord's name. What All Samson can think about in this moment is who? Samson himself. This is what revenge gets us. I will be avenged on you, he says. And that's the main problem with any kind of revenge. It has nothing to do with the Lord. It's all about us. It's a very selfish action. Our pride is hurt. Our feelings are, are wounded. And, and we feel the need to get even. And that's what Samson did. It's all about how we feel and what's been done to us. And that is Samson's problem. And it's the problem of every person who seeks to get even. And, and God, I'm here to tell you, God has a much better way a much better way. Instead of taking matters into our own hands, what are we to do? We're to leave these things in the hands of the Lord. Romans chapter 12, look at verses 17 to 21. Paul, once again, he doesn't stutter here. He doesn't misspeak. It's very clear what he's saying. You don't have to even interpret it. He says in verse 17, Romans 12, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil but give thought to what is honorable, to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, what are you supposed to do? Live peaceably with all. That includes people who mistreat you. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but what? Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And then he says this, which is just, seems crazy in our minds. Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, what are you to do? Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is such a vital command. It's, it's, it's something that Paul is, is commanding us to do. And I think we need to be honest with ourselves and to realize that, you know what, we don't always do this well. A lot of times, what do we want? We want revenge. We want to see people suffer. Why? Because we suffered. 
we don't have any thought of overcoming, uh, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You've got to be kidding me. And so we need to stop and, and realize that this is, this is something that the Lord desires of us. He commands of us. That heaping burning coals on his head, MacArthur says this, it refers to an ancient Egyptian custom in which a person who wanted to show public contrition carried a pan of coals on his head, burning coals on his head. And the coals represented the burning pain of his shame and guilt. When believers lovingly help their enemies, it should bring shame to such people for their hate and animosity. Um, instead of attacking those who attack us, what are we to do? We're to pray for them. Uh, we're to love them. We're to, we're to be good to them. Jesus himself said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 to 48. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Why? Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have, Paul says. What big deal is that? Do not even tax collectors do the same? Well, then they were the lowest <laughs> section of sinners that in, in their society. Verse 47, And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know, we have to be reminded that, you know what, we should pray for their salvation when someone's lashing out at us. We should, we should care for their soul instead of just seeking revenge. We need to bless those who are, are persecuted. He says, blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you, verse 11 and, and 12 there, uh, when others revile you and persecute you with all kinds of evil against you falsely, on my account. That's the key there, on my account. You know, some people think they're being persecuted and basically all they're doing is they're acting like an idiot and people are treating them like an idiot, but they feel that's persecution. No, I mean, we have to be careful, you know, when we're, we're out there in the world and dealing with people. We don't want to be offensive to people, but at the same time, we don't want to misspeak or, or deny the truth when we're talking about things, but we have to, you know, have that kind of a, a relationship. But he says, hey, there's going to be people that revile you and persecute you and speak all kinds of evil against you falsely. People are going to say things about you that are not true. Just accept it and get over it. The Lord knows. Uh, Rejoice and be glad, he says, for your reward is great in heaven. Another uh, section, you can just uh, read it on your own, First Peter 4. It talks about that in verses 12 to 19 as well. Um, Acts 5.41 Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Um, you know, instead of attacking, attacking others when they attack us, we should do what we have been commanded to do by the Lord. And, and what is that? Very simple. We should practice full and free forgiveness for people. That's not easy. That's not something you can do in your flesh. You need the Holy Spirit to do that. Um, that's Ephesians 4.32, right? Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, it says. What? Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. See, when you become a Christian, it just opens the, the door, the pathway for 
people to mistreat you, for things to be said about you that aren't true, all these things, even within the church. These kinds of things go on. That's why Paul is talking to Christians here, and he's saying, hey, the command is be kind to one another. Why would he be telling them that if they were already being kind to one another? No, they weren't being kind to one another. So he's saying, remember, you've got to be kind to one another. You have to be tenderhearted toward people. Okay? You have to be willing to forgive one another. Some people aren't willing to forgive one another. And the, the picture is as, Christ in, in, as God in Christ forgave you. And we have the, the picture of Peter asking, well, how many times? You know, my brother sins against me in Matthew 18, right? How many times should I forgive him? Should I forgive him seven times? Many seven times? He's thinking, wow, he's really reaching for it here seven times. You know, and the Lord says, no. <laughs> how about 70 times seven, Peter? You know, so when you stop and you, you think about these things, you, you have to understand that if, if, if you're not willing to forgive others as Christ has forgiven you, do you really understand what forgiveness is? Do you really understand it? I'll close with this verse. In Luke 17, verses 1 to 5, it says, And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come. But he says, Woe to the one through whom they come. All right? There's going to be temptations to sin, but don't bring that temptation to others purposely. Verse 2, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Then he says this in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, what are we called to do? Rebuke him. Call him out on it. If he repents, forgive him. That's what we're called to do. Verse 4, and if he sins against you seven times in the day. This is a really good friend, right? I mean, he offends you seven times in one day. I'm surprised he's still your friend, you know. So your brother counted somebody you want to hang around with. It says, if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times and says, you know what? I repent. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to do that. I know this is the, the eighth time I've done it, but sorry about that. I repent. What's he say? You must forgive him. You must forgive him. We're not to gauge, well, they must not mean it. You know, they're just using this. That's, that's, that's on the Lord. It's not on you. See? And that's why the apostles in the very next verse said, the, the apostles said, Lord, increase our faith, Lord. In other words, how can we do this? This is not something that's easy. You know, when you get married, you learn very quickly, this is something you have to practice within the marriage relationship. The acknowledgement of wrongdoing and, and asking for forgiveness and forgiving the other person. If you don't have that down, your relationship is not going to be in a relationship. It's going to be miserable. Because you're not married to a perfect person. And guess what? They're not married to a perfect person. And that's why marriage isn't for happiness. We don't get married so we can be happy. We get married. God's purpose in marriage is really to what? Make us holy. I'm going to take two imperfect people and I'm, who are in Christ and I'm going to bring them together and I'm going to tell them to live in the same, hold, in the same household in love and harmony together for the rest of their lives. This would be fun to watch. <laughs> Because they can't do it. It's impossible. That's why the Bible speaks of being having Christ in that relationship, right? Christ is that third cord. I mean, because if you don't have that, it's miserable. I don't know if you remember this, but back in 1979, I had to go on YouTube today and watch this again because it's just pretty cool. The, the Daytona 500. 100,000 fans were watching, and Richard Petty ended up 
he ended a 45-race losing streak and picked up what was at the time Stock Cars Racing's biggest purse, $73,500. And it happened at the 79 Daytona 500. And Petty's win, if you go and you watch the video, was a complete surprise to everybody because he was not winning the race. Going into the last lap, he was in third place. Third place. And he was several car lengths behind one and two. So there's no way he was ever going to make it. He was running about half a lap behind, 30 seconds behind the two leaders. And all at once, Kale Yarborough, the driver of the, the car in second place, tried to pass Donnie Allison in the lead on the final stretch. And what happens, it, it, it caused the first place Allison to drift inside, and he actually uh, forced Yarborough into the grass on, along the track. And what happened next was pretty incredible. Yarborough took his car and pulled it back onto the track, caught up with Allison, and hit Allison. Well, now both cars are reeling out of control. They both go into the wall. This is one and two. I mean, pretty big time, right? One and two. They both end up on the infield. And uh, what happened? Um, Petty went on to win the race. To everybody's surprise. I mean, you've got to watch the YouTube video. It's just crazy. And, and both of these vehicles just come to a screeching halt and all this dust and everything. And, and the, the guys are saying, oh, yeah, yeah, Petty won the race. They're showing all that and everything. They're like, whoa, what's going on over here? And they go back to, to Yarbrough and Allison. Guess what they're doing? They're, <laughs> they're, they're pounding each other with helmets and just all-out brawl. I mean, they're bloodying each other's faces. And it was, you know, Donnie Allison, who was leading the race, got his revenge. But in the end, it was bittersweet. Because guess what? Neither one of them won. Neither one of them won. And you know what? When we, when we want revenge on someone, we just have to realize it's not a winning solution. It, it says a lot about us when we have that kind of an attitude. But I think if this episode with Samson teaches us anything, it teaches us that revenge is a game played only by fools. Wise men know when to walk away and to leave whatever situation in the hands of a sovereign God who will one day settle accounts and he'll balance all the books. He's going to take care of it. You know, people, even in our own government, are not getting away with anything. You know, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes you just get enraged if you watch any of the news at all. It's just very disheartening. It's very frustrating. But you know what? God sees everything. And you, you just have to realize that. Uh, I mean, it's so much better to be like someone like Jesus in that kind of a character than Samson. The Bible says about Jesus in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You know, I don't know what the Lord's saying to you, but he really spoke to my heart this week, and I really had to go through some questions, you know, is, is, there, is there someone you need to forgive? Is there someone who's maybe offended you in some way and you need to forgive them? Uh, are there some things that you need to let go? Maybe you need to repent of, of seeking to harm others by your actions or by your words. Do you need to turn away from having that vengeful spirit? God set this text here for us for a purpose. And I know I needed to hear it. I, as I studied it, and I, I suspect... 
we all do here tonight. And so let's, let's obey him as he speaks to our hearts in, in, in this word. Let me close in prayer, and then we'll just spend a couple minutes in prayer for our country. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would just uh, minister this truth to our heart. Lord, help us not to be like Samson, not to have a um, uh, heart that's vengeful and reactive and angry and carrying out wrath against people. But Lord, I pray that our hearts would be more like Christ and be willing to um, be silent when we need to be silent and, and trust you for the outcome of these kind of things. And Lord, it's, it's hard sometimes, to be frank. It's, it's tough when people attack us unjustly. We, we want to defend. We want to do all kinds of things. Uh, but Lord, we know that um, that's not what your word calls us to do. And so we don't want to go by our standard, but we want to go by yours. And so we pray tonight that you would just uh, help us to uh, live a life that's filled with your spirit, not our flesh, not our prideful desires or passions, but, Lord, that we would be willing to be tenderhearted and forgiving one another in love as you have forgiven us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.